Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we conclude our series, A Vision for Christmas, with a message entitled, Isaiah's Hope in a Messiah. So turning your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 16, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Hope, it's a very powerful thing to have. People without hope eventually lose the will to live, lose a sense of well-being, become aimless, and easily fall prey to very destructive patterns of living. G.K. Chesterton had said something about hope that I have needed some time to consider. He said, hope means hoping when things are hopeless, or it is no virtue at all. As long as matters are really hopeful, Hope is merely flattery or platitude. It's only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength. You might wonder if he's right. You know, a university student might say, I remain hopeful that I'm going to get into medical school. The chances are about 50-50, but I will continue to remain hopeful. Now, is that hope? Well, from one perspective, I guess it is. But from that perspective, hope is tied to optimism. And if we have a certain bent in our personality, we remain hopeful. Now, another person might say, I I don't want to get my hopes up. And when they say that, they mean that if they become hopeful and then their hope is not fulfilled, well, their spirit is going to be crushed. Again, from this definition, hope is merely a reflection of what we want. But now let's say our hope-filled student has just heard back from the medical entrance people and the letter has said, not accepted. Now, how do we tell the difference between the hopeful person and the delusional person? You see, if all that hope is is wishing for or even being confident in the best possible outcome, I say it again, hope then is no more than a bent of our personality. But for Chesterton, Hope is biblical hope. Chesterton thought that that hope was the knowledge that the soul survives its adventures, that, that there really is a life beyond the grave. And, says Chesterton, it is really at death that all hope seems hopeless. But genuine hope begins there, he said. So I think then that that we need to make a distinction between wishful thinking combined with an optimistic personality and genuine hope. In the case of Christian hope, Christian hope is built upon the things that God has promised. So let me distinguish faith from hope. Faith is based on the trustworthiness of God. We trust God, believing him to be trustworthy. He would never give us a promise if he were either unable or unwilling to keep it. God's promises about tomorrow is as good as yesterday's news. Now, how is hope different from that? Well, in one sense... You know, hope and faith are very much the same. But hope, as Chesterton says, is that thing that keeps hoping when all else is hopeless. So hope is related to the thing that God has promised, whereas faith is directed toward the one who has made the promises. You know, when the Christian lies dying, hope declares with Job of old, the worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I will see God. Well, now, That's hopeless. The body will soon die. It's going to be placed in a grave, and it's going to decay, and its elements are going to be dissolved and scattered. Yeah, says the hoper, I am fully aware of how hopeless my situation has become. But my confidence that I will stand bodily before God remains undiminished. 
Now, we come to the end of Isaiah's vision of Christmas, and today we end on a very important note. We've seen the images of hope painted against a very dark canvas. Isaiah lives in the southern kingdom of Judah, and he, no doubt, lives within the city of Jerusalem. The king is King Ahaz, and rather than holding forth the promise of the Messiah, Ahaz is a brutally wicked man. He's even burned his own sons in the fire to the idols he's embraced. And furthermore, Judah is on the verge of being overwhelmed by an immediate threat and then also a far more ominous long-term threat. And the king of Judah, Ahaz, has refused Isaiah's offer of help from the God of heaven. You know, rather than looking to God for salvation, the king has foolishly made a treaty with the Assyrian Empire. It was, it was madness, but this is what men without faith do. But against that foreboding background of national doom, Isaiah paints a picture of hope. One day a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and that very son is going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Well then, what shall we make of the fact that the current king in the genealogical line of the Messiah, what do we make of the fact that he has no faith and looks to be dooming his country with his foolish treaty with the Assyrians? Well, we come now to the end of Isaiah chapter 10. So we begin with a reminder of what God would do to the Assyrian Empire. You know, God is saying that after Assyria has accomplished his purposes— that of destroying the idols of Judah, that after that, God is going to burn them to the ground. Assyria is going to fall, never to rise again. And then, as we know, that's exactly what happened to the once feared and dreaded empire. But what of the people of God? What happens to them? Well, let's read Isaiah chapter 10, verse 20. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. So notice that Isaiah here, as before, uses the word remnant. That's because Isaiah knew that the vast majority of Israel and Judah worshipped idols. They trusted in political alliances. They believed in themselves and in their own abilities and thought that would get them through in the day of trouble. And that's what hope meant to them. But they were going to find out how wrong they were. Before Assyria was destroyed, they did damage that Isaiah predicted. In 722 BC, the Assyrians defeated the northern kingdom of Israel and deported the entire population. And that effectively ended the ten northern tribes, reducing them to nothing. And furthermore, the Assyrians were busy in attacking and destroying one city of Judah after another, getting ready to destroy Jerusalem. And as we've seen, Isaiah said it was God himself who was using the Assyrians, you know, the way in which a man would use an axe. God was chopping the trees down. But Isaiah also saw that Assyria would not destroy the promised people of God entirely. A remnant, he says, is going to survive. But there's more. The remnant that would survive would no longer lean on him who struck them. That is, the remnant would, in the day of trouble, rely on God, not on political alliances with evil nations. They wouldn't look to their own clever designs. They would rather think that God was far more clever than they've ever been in the past. That's faith in God. But let's go forward to Isaiah 10, verses 21 to 23. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed overflowing with righteousness. 
For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. So we remember here that God had told Abraham that that his descendants would be as the sand on the sea. But here Isaiah says that great crowd is going to be reduced to a very small group. You know, it's natural to stop here and reflect about the, the flow of biblical history. When the human race first fell into sin, God promised that one day he would deliver us and save us. But then later in Genesis 12, we began to see how God would do that. Abraham was told that he was going to be blessed and that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. From that came the idea, and it was the right idea, that Abraham's physical descendants would become the source of the blessings of the earth. Or go ahead to the time when King Solomon was dedicating the temple. Remember that the temple was thought of as the place in the world where God would make his presence known. Listen to a part of Solomon's prayer at the dedication. It's in 1 Kings 8, 41 to 43. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. And when he comes and prays toward this house, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. And there's certainly in the earlier parts of the Bible that feeling that perhaps Israel's influence was going to grow until it enveloped the earth and then the Messiah would come. But instead of that occurring, as we've seen from Isaiah, Israel didn't advance the glory of God. Instead, the children of Abraham became an idolatrous nation. They ignored the law of God. They trampled on the rights of the poor, and they were being oppressed by the nations around them. Now, says Isaiah, things are going to get worse. The descendants of Abraham are going to be reduced to a very small group indeed. Destruction is decreed, he says. It's it's going to get very dark. Indeed, it's going to appear hopeless. The dream that a Messiah would appear on David's throne. Well, who's there left to believe that now? This Christmas, join with us for a renewed vision for the season, a renewed passion to stand shoulder to shoulder in advancing the clear message of the gospel story. For us, a child is born. While December is the time of year that sets the tone for the new year of ministry ahead, your gifts ensure the gospel message is heard across the nation. So whether you're a long-standing partner in ministry or you've recently been impacted by any of the Bible teaching programs of Back to the Bible Canada, could we ask you to stand with us this month in our effort to raise $465,000 by December 31st? Your gift, among other committed ministry partners across Canada, will sustain and grow this Bible teaching ministry into 2020. Please consider sending your gift to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada today. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca. Let's now move forward to Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So let's start by understanding the image. Stump, 
That's what's left after a tree is cut down or blown down in a windstorm. The tree has been toppled and it's now gone. So what's Isaiah referring to? He's referring to a tree called the tree of Jesse. Ah, we know what that is. Jesse was the father of King David and David was given the promise that his kingdom would endure forever until someone came who would inherit his throne and then from there rule the earth. That's the promise. The Messiah will come and rule on David's throne. It will be in Jerusalem, and from there, he will rule the earth. And then from that event, the earth would be full of the knowledge of the glory of God. That is the promise of Christmas, but that's also what Isaiah predicted when he told of a virgin who bore a son, and that child would be called Mighty God, come to us in human flesh. But now after so much sin and so much failure, and so much idolatry, so much denial of God as Savior. Isaiah says that in the future, the kingdom of David itself would fall like a tree falls in the forest. Well, does that mean that God will not save us? Does that mean that God won't keep his promises? Well, yes, says Isaiah, God does keep his promises. But in such a hopeless scenario, who can find hope now? See, Isaiah's prophecy that the kingdom of David would fall like a tree in the forest, that did come true. It was 587 BC. The Babylonians had surrounded Jerusalem, and by that time, Isaiah had long since died, and Jeremiah the prophet was telling the people that because of the sins of Judah, her kingdom was about to come to an end. They should go out now, he said, and surrender to the Babylonians. Their time in the land was coming to an end. And in response, the people of Judah condemned Jeremiah as a traitor. It's God's temple, they said. God would never let his temple be destroyed. And we're God's chosen people, they said. And our king, they said. Well, that's the offspring of David. And as God saved his people from the Assyrians in the time of Isaiah, he's going to also save us from the Babylonians. And in the meantime, the people callously carried on in their sins. And so the Babylonians attacked and they broke down the wall of Jerusalem and they entered into the city. And Jeremiah describes the cruelty of the Babylonians and it was horrifying. He also describes how the Babylonians burned the temple down. They they utterly destroyed it. But for our purposes, the then king of Judah, King Zedekiah, made a breach in the wall and fled into the night. The Babylonians pursued him and they captured him and they brought him to Babylon. They then killed all his sons before his eyes, and they effectively deprived him of an heir to the throne. And then they put out his eyes and made him blind and put him in chains. The tree of the kingdom of David came crashing to the ground, and it it lay on the forest floor, just as Isaiah had said. You know, I live in the west coast of British Columbia, and we have very large, old, stately trees here. Douglas firs, they're amazingly large trees. They can grow to 200 to 300 feet tall. It's incredible. They can be five to six feet in diameter, and they can live as long as a thousand years. They're utterly wonderful to look at. But I've also seen a number of stumps in our forest. And then remarkably, out of a stump, you're gonna find a shoot coming out. And that is what Isaiah says here. The kingdom of David, because of her sins, is going to come crashing down, and then, just when you think it's over, And anyone who hopes is simply delusional, suddenly, from that family tree of Jesse, new life is going to spring forth. Now, pay close attention. Isaiah doesn't actually say the stump of David. Notice, he says the stump of Jesse. 
He means to say that when the new life begins again, it will go all the way back to its origins. It will not be related to all those corrupt kings that came up. I'm reminded of the Magi who arrived in Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago now. Their question was, where is he who is born king of the Jews? Where is the next king from the line of David? We've seen a star in the east and we've come to worship him, they said. And Herod, who was not a Jew but an Idumean, was immediately afraid. He knows, as does everyone else in Jerusalem, that Isaiah's prophecy hasn't yet been fulfilled, not since 587 B.C. No king has ruled, no shoot of Jesse. Is this now the time when the fallen stump of Jesse sees a shoot come forward? But Isaiah already anticipates, and he answers any concerns anyone might have had. What if the renewal of the promise given to David, that that a king from him would rule the earth, what if that king ends up just like the last set of kings? You know, corrupt, unbelieving, idolatrous, trusting in their own abilities rather than the Lord. What if that? Well, then history just repeats itself. It's no answer at all. And Isaiah answers that concern. Isaiah 11 verse 2 says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. See, the issue here is that shoot from the stump of Jesse would be filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm reminded of Matthew's description of the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Matthew 3.16, Matthew says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. It is in that moment, symbolically shown, that this is the one Isaiah was speaking about. Unlike previous kings, this one isn't sometimes faithful and sometimes unfaithful. Sometimes, you know, trusting in God and sometimes trusting in himself. Indeed, as Isaiah says, whether it's wisdom or understanding, this one is submissive to the wisdom from above. But Isaiah is still not done in his description of the Messiah to come. Isaiah 11, 3-4 says, And his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. See, every king in human history has had things they have loved, and they've had things they've hated. Isaiah says that the Messiah will have no greater joy than the fear of the Lord. So what does that mean? Well, look at the context. When the king to come is called upon to make decisions, says Isaiah, he won't decide by what his eyes see. So what does that mean? Well, you might remember there was a time when the prophet Samuel went to the house of Jesse, and he was about to pick the next king of Israel. And Jesse had his son stand before the prophet, but David was not among them. He was the youngest, and he was out in the field caring for the menial farming duties. Do you remember what God told the prophet Samuel? It's recorded in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance but the Lord looks on the heart. And that, says Isaiah, is what the Messiah is going to do. He will look from the vantage point of God. 
seeing deeply into the hearts of every one of his subjects, seeing only as God can see. And Isaiah is not done, verses 5 to 9. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Ah, the last line, the earth shall be full of the glory of the Lord. That right there was the hope of Israel. One day this Messiah, who as we saw earlier, would come as a baby from a virgin. Or if we had continued in our study in Isaiah up to chapter 53, we would see that the Messiah would suffer terribly, that he would be put to death. But here against all hope, says Isaiah, one day when he rules, all the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God to the extent that there would even be peace between a cobra and the child who plays next to it. Nonsense, you say. It's not possible. The hope of the earth rests on political and scientific solutions, you say. Ah, but Isaiah answers, you misunderstand. Only Yahweh saves. And this, my friend, is Isaiah's vision of Christmas. Do you share his vision? Do you see in the child in the manger the hope for all the earth? If you do, I think you're going to have a very Merry Christmas. John, I love this message, and I I love the quote you used earlier from Chesterton, where he says, hope means hoping when things are hopeless. Really, without hopelessness, there's no hope, and Christ brings that hope into our lives. Yeah, hope in the biblical sense is well-grounded hope. It's a certainty in the promises of God. That's what genuine hope is for us. I think um, the way in which hope gets used, I say, I really hope that's going to happen. In other words, you know, I mean, maybe it's 51% as opposed to 49% or something of that. You know, that's not genuine hope. And so we need to reacquaint ourselves with a biblical hope that when God gives his word, it will be accomplished. None of the good promises of our God are going to fall to the ground Christmas is the assurance that God has always kept his word. We have reason to be robustly hopeful. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Hi, this is Dr. John Newfeld. This year is coming to a close and I couldn't be more grateful for the encouragement, prayers, and support we've received from you, so many across the country. Your support reminds me that we're not alone in our desire and commitment to teach the Word and to see people come to know Jesus. December is a critical month as we make plans for the ministry year ahead. Your continued partnership in reaching our year-end financial goals will do so much in the effort to sustain and grow the Bible teaching ministries right here at Back to the Bible Canada. Our goal by December 31st is to reach $465,000. The task is great, but I believe with a continued commitment together, we can make it happen. 
So thank you in advance and please give us a call today and make your donation at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca.